Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good to see you this morning. Great to see all of you watching from home as well. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to ask you to take your copy of God's Word. Join me in John chapter 17. This is the text that Pastor Phil read us at the outset of our time together. We started a series last week on prayer. It's been my experience, even in normal times, that prayer intimidates a lot of people. It's been my experience as a pastor that a lot of people have given up on prayer. Or if they pray, it's more of just a a reciting of words. It's just something you do. But it's not really anything that has any power. And if you had to be honest with me or with your loved ones, you would say, yeah, it's just, it's something I know I'm supposed to do, but it's become very rote. It's become sometimes a little bit trite. And I just don't feel confident in that anymore. And in most cases, the reason this happens is because We don't treat prayer the way Jesus has instructed us to treat prayer. And so in Matthew chapter 6, a text that we looked at last week, Jesus says these very powerful words. He says, when you pray, pray in this way. If we are smart, we're going to pay very, very close attention to everything that comes after those words. And so what we're going to do Uh, over the next several weeks, uh, really taking us through the summer and into the school year, whatever that's going to look like uh, for so many of you. Uh, We're going to move through each of these categories of things that Jesus told us to pray for, and we begin at the outset of that model prayer with these words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are powerful words just to recite them by themselves, but there's a spirit behind them that Jesus wants us to capture if, in fact, our prayers are going to be powerful. And generally speaking, it kind of matters how you begin any task determines your focus, doesn't it? How you begin any task, and this is especially true for prayer, determines your focus. Jesus is saying in these words, when you pray, pray in this way. And then he essentially is saying, start by settling into who your God is, recognizing who you're talking to, because prayer that is powerful begins with a solid center. If you don't have a solid center, you don't have a lot of hope for your prayers having any effect, bringing you in sync with the Lord, accomplishing anything transformative as Jesus would intend for your prayers to do. So let's play with this idea of the center. Let's use an astronomical example this morning. Let's talk about our own solar system, all right? Scientists tell us that 98% of the mass of our solar system is in the sun. Did you know that? 98%. That leaves 2% For everything else, every other matter, including all the cells inside your body and mind, the chairs that you're sitting on, 2% for all the planets, including big old Jupiter that's out there, that's 300 times the size of planet Earth, the asteroids, the moons, all of that together makes up only 2%. The mass, 98% of it's in the sun. That means that it is an ontological fact that the sun must be at the center, not just for things to go well, the sun must be at the center for anything else to exist. Because if you take that out of the center and you try to put anything else in it, 
okay, or our pre-Galileo days when we actually thought the earth was at the center of the solar system and that the sun revolved around it. Turns out that if that's, the, if that's actually true, nothing's true. Nothing can exist unless the sun is at the center. So let's, let's play with that idea of the center a little bit. Let's cross-reference some of those planets to areas of, of your life and mine. All right, let's take Mercury, and let's say Mercury is your, your job. This is what you do for a paycheck. This is what you do for a living. Let's take Venus, given the fact that she, along with her Greek counterpart Aphrodite, was the goddess of sex and love. Let's make her your romantic interests, your marriage relationships. Let's take Earth and make that just kind of, what do you do at the end of the day when you kick back? What, what are some of those leisure activities? Mars, uh, for those of you who remember Mars candy bars, first thing I thought about was food. So uh, let's take Mars and make that food. What do you like? Where do you like to go to eat? Let's take Jupiter and let's make that, I mean, big stuff. First trip you ever took to the Grand Canyon or to Europe or to Israel or somewhere like that. Big events like a graduation or a marriage or the birth of the first child. Big old stuff. That's Jupiter. Saturn, let's make that your financial life. What's going on with your banking app and your investments? Uranus, let's have that be your hobbies. Maybe you're in a, on the golf course or in a tree stand or riding on a motorcycle or whatever you're doing. Neptune could be your political affiliations, whoever it is you plan on voting for this November. And Pluto could be athletics or sports, the things you do for physical fitness. If you take any of those things, and ain't none of them bad, but if you try to put them in the center of your life so that your life becomes all about that, then much like taking the sun out of the solar system, the result on your life is going to be chaos. So it's really important at the outset of our prayer lives for us to start asking the question, what is it that defines me exactly? Because if anything other than your relationship with your creator begins to define the essence of who you are, the result is going to be chaos in your life. I love being a married man. Been married 26 years to this phenomenal woman. I bragged on her just yesterday. Her birthday is today. Y'all can't sing because you ain't masked up just yet. Plus, I don't want to end up in the doghouse. But we celebrated, spent most of our time celebrating yesterday because uh, we knew we were going to be serving God's people today. And I, we just had a wonderful time. I'm telling you, I love that woman. I, my life would be infinitely less without her. But here's the deal. I would still have a life without her. And before you think I'm being mean, if she were standing up here, she would tell you the same thing about me. You know why? Because we've both come to realize that though each of us is a gift from a good God to the other, neither of us can be ultimate. Some people, in fact, have marriage trouble because they're trying to put their wife or their husband on a throne where only Jesus belongs, okay? And so this is part of the issue. It's like, she can't be my whole world. I can't be her whole world. Only God is eternal. Even marriage is not eternal. It's lifelong if we do it right, but it's not eternal because eventually one of you is going to die. And then you're not gonna, the one that's left behind, you're not going to be married any longer. So if you make your marriage relationship the center of your existence, your life eventually is going to be in chaos. Some of you, it's your children. Everything centers around those kids. How many parents have I heard say, my children are my whole world? Well, then you live in a jacked up world and you're probably raising jacked up kids. They can't be at the center of everything. Let me tell you something. What's something that's really got, got, gotten under my skin and it's bothering me right now is sports and athletics because I am told that there's this really nervous conversation uh, going around the nation right now about whether or not there's actually going to be football season. I mean in America. <laughs> football season is, I'm, what in the, by the way, do they, 
If there's not a football season, does anybody know, do they just go ahead and give Alabama the trophy like they give them a playoff spot every year? I was kidding. You can leave it back on. There's some Alabama people watching from home that just turned me off. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. That was funny. Sports can't be at the center. It can't define who you are. Effective prayer, just like your life, begins when you rightly answer the question, what is it that defines me? And so when Jesus says, pray in this way, and he starts with Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you and I need to begin our prayers by resetting ourselves and asking the Lord to define the totality of who we are based solely in relation to the one who created us. When we do that, we're ready to do something incredibly powerful. You're like, what, what does that look like, Pastor? What does it sound like? Well, I would imagine, among other things, it sounds a little bit like the 73rd Psalm when the psalmist wrote the following words. My flesh and my heart may fail. Let me back up a little bit. Let me, let me go to the previous verse. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is none that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail. You are the strength of my life and my portion forever. And so if that's the aim, if that should be the aim of our hearts, really no wonder that Jesus tells us in prayer, the first thing you need to do is center those prayers, which means you pray first, I pray first for the glory of God, that he would not just take up center space, but that he would remain the center. And what we have in John chapter 17 is an example of how Jesus himself models this for us. This is commonly known by people who read the New Testament, very familiar with it, as Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's just finished instructing his disciples. He's made them great promises about the effectiveness of their prayers. And then all of a sudden, almost like an impromptu moment, he then lifts his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray in front of them. And he prays first in these first five verses for God to be glorified in him. So if you want to know what does it mean to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, Jesus' model prayer reveals at least three things that that means. It means, first of all, we are to pray for God to be glorified in Christ. Before I have brought him a need, before I have asked him to solve a problem, before I have done anything else, I pray for the glory of God to be seen in the person and the work of Jesus. Look at verse 1. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Notice those words, the hour has come. You sense the finality in that? The solemnity is appropriate. Let me tell you why. Because just hours away from this prayer is the cross. And Jesus knows it. Just hours away from this prayer and this being modeled in front of his disciples, this man will be unjustly tried in a kangaroo court. He will be stripped naked, have portions of his beard yanked out of his face, have a crown of thorns that are that thick pressed through all of his layers into the very base of his skull. He's going to be nailed naked and humiliated to a cross. All that's just hours away. Moreover, on top of that, if you can believe it, that's not even the worst part of it. Beyond that physical pain, he is about to have the sins of everyone who ever has or ever will believe on him. So think of all of your sin, that stuff that only you and God know about, and all of my sin combined with all of your sin, and all of your sins here together today, and all of the sins of anybody who's watching live right now or who are going to watch on demand at some point throughout this week times the 
hundreds or even millions of churches that have existed for the last 2,000 years. Add into that those old covenant saints who were saved by faith looking forward to that same Messiah. The unspeakable wrath of God is about to fall on the sun for the sins of every one of those people. And in that environment, with that moment, just hours away, how does Jesus start his prayer? Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. How does that contrast with what we're tempted to do in our prayers? Just kind of launch in. I'm, I'm with you on that. Just sort of launch in. Lord, get me out of this. Get me out of it. It's not as though he's living in denial. Matthew 26 tells us that in Gethsemane, he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's not as though he's living in denial. I mean, he knows what's coming. And there's some self-concern, but with all of this in view, Jesus begins not with deliver me, not with rescue me, but with this, glorify me. And through glorifying me, glorify yourself. Now, it's easy for us to look back on that and go, well, of course, because the cross is a glory. There are four big ones in this room right now. There's another one on the front of our building. There's another one over on the side of the building. I am certain there are multitudes more in different places throughout this facility because we rightly see the cross as the centrality of the Christian faith. But for us, we look back on it 2,000 years and we go, well, of course, it was a victory. Of course, it's a glory. We wear it like jewelry. It adorns our campus. But we forget sometimes that 2,000 years ago when the world thought of the cross, the only thing they thought about was the same thing you think about when you think of an electric chair. It was an instrument of execution and shame. And the clear indication here is that Jesus had the foresight to understand that it would become a glory, that the experience of the cross would ultimately glorify the Son. Paul, in his letter to Philippi, would remind us in Philippians chapter 2 that God, the Lord Jesus, in his obedience unto death, the result of that, the death of the cross, is that God has given him a name that is above every name and that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so God is, even through the cross, glorified in Jesus Christ. So guess what that makes my primary task and yours? To begin with that request. Whatever's going on, whatever the millions of things that may occupy my mind, that may cause me to lose sleep at night, if I want my prayers to quell any of that, to actually solve any of that, short-term or long-term, this is the first place I have to go. Begin my prayers. Father, you are hallowed. May you be glorified in my life and the life of those around me. Uh, the author, Robert Louis Stevenson, when he was a boy, he went through one of those phases like a lot of young boys go through when they're about seven or eight years of age. A little stubborn streak. His mother was having some trouble with him. She was whacking him on the backside, sending him to his room on several occasions. And in the middle of all this discipline were some spiritual conversations about what it means to honor your father and mother and to obey your parents as children ought to do. And, and, and he said to his mother one time, he said, Mama, I, I've learned you can't be good by pray, unless you pray. And, and so a few minutes later, Mama walked by the bedroom and saw little Robert Lewis up, up on his bed, on his knees, hands folded, praying. It warmed her heart. And she said, son, it makes me so proud to see you do this. Are you praying for God to forgive you? And he said, no, mama, I'm praying for God to help you put up with me. Now, how often do our prayers sound like that? 
God, I, I, I just need other people to put up with me. I just need you to put up with me. Because it's centered around, listen, I want to do what I want to do. I want to feel what I want to feel. And it's like we know that something is wrong, but if we're unaware of the specifics, we understand that we've contributed to the problem. But instead of asking God to change us, we ask him to change something else. This is why some of you are losing your ever-loving minds in the middle of this pandemic right now. Lord, take us back to February. Lord, take us forward to a vaccine. How about God glorify yourself in this moment over which you are sovereign? How about that? Anybody praying that? When we begin with that, you know what you're doing? You're putting God where he rightfully belongs. And that sets the stage for the most powerful kind of prayer. And so, and I get it, it's tough. I come to the Lord and my mind is full of thousands of things and in my soul and my psyche are full of things that are going to cause me to lose sleep but the way that quells is for me to go all right lord i got a lot going on you know my mind better than i know my own mind i want to first ask you to use me to make christ known that the son would be glorified because that's how the kingdom advances and what did jesus teach us about the kingdom in matthew 6 33 if you will seek that first, it, it's, it's fine to come to me with the cancer. It's fine to come to me with the marriage problems. It's fine to come to me with the rebellious kids. It's fine to come to me with the loneliness and the depression. I'm your father. I want to hear that from you. Okay? But if you will seek first the kingdom, all these other things will be added unto you. So in prayer, you have two choices. You can either leave those thousands of things bumping around in your brain, and maybe you cover them all, or maybe you don't, and maybe some of them get addressed, or maybe they don't, or you can do what Jesus said to do and say, I will focus on the kingdom of God, and I'm going to trust Jesus to take care of everything else. Start with the kingdom of God. This is the prayer for God to be glorified in Christ. Now, what's that sound like? Well, the primary way that that happens is by conversions. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus continues and says, Since you have given him, Jesus is speaking about himself here in the third person, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So first, glorify yourself in Jesus Christ. And if you're wondering how that happens, these verses answer that question. One of the things we see here is that the cross that Jesus is about to face was not a defeat, it was a victory. That it was an overwhelming victory, proven three days later by his resurrection, because that death on the cross would do two things. It would firstly pay the sin debt for every single person who ever had or ever would believe. And the second thing that it would do is it would give authority to Jesus to grant eternal life to anyone who comes to him in repentance and in faith. And so our prayers need to include an earthly request for that to happen through us. So before anything else, 
occupies my mind. I need to focus on who my God is. I need to be anchored to him as my center. I need to be defined by him. I need to pray for his kingdom to come. And then more specifically, I need to pray for others to become the subjects of that kingdom. Because here's the deal, folks. The biggest problem we face in the human race right now is the same thing that we have faced that was the biggest problem that our father Adam and our mother Eve faced. It is not a pandemic. It's not who's going to win in November. It's not what's going to happen to this nation or anything else like that. It's not the culture wars. It's not your 401k. It is your separation from God. Everything else can be lined up. If that ain't fixed, you're going to be damned. Separation from God. Everything else in your neighbor's life, and your loved one's life can be fixed. If that one's not fixed, they're going to be damned. And so Jesus says, we pray in a way that emphasizes that that gap of separation is closed. Back last fall, we spent several weeks together asking each other really pertinent three-word three question. Who's your one? Who's that person? Who's that relative, that spouse perhaps, parent or child, that, that coworker, that, that someone who doesn't yet know Jesus? Nine months later, after everything we've experienced, let me ask you a question. Is that person still at the forefront of your mind? Do you still lose sleep over that individual? Because when you pray for that friend or that relative, the fuel that impassions that is not just that person's salvation. It's that that person's conversion to Christ is part of a bigger plan to display clearly and magnify greatly the love of God. And so when Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done, you know what's embedded in that is a desire for the rule of the Lord Jesus to be present in every heart. This is what I want. And so when you pray for your one, that's what you're praying for. Center your focus on the Lord and on prayer, and we do so understanding there is no greater need in the world, nor is there any greater way to bring glory to God than for people to be saved, for people to understand that they are separated from God, that there is a Savior, a man who came and lived a life they were incapable of, died as their substitute, rose from the dead, and offers them full, free, and unconditional pardon at absolutely no cost. That's the center of the gospel. And so pray, God, God, would you show yourself mighty? Again, this predates, this prefaces anything else that's going on in my mind. I want God to be glorified, and I want him to be glorified in the conversion of souls. Show yourself mighty in the conversion of my husband, of my wife, of my parents, of my children, of my coworkers, of my cousins, of my friends. Who are you thinking of right now? Don't ever be afraid to ask God for their soul. And in case you're wondering how that happens, how do, I, how do I ask God? Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. You may want to jot these down. I, I, there are many other examples in Scripture. I give you this one because it's the one I used when I was praying for my children to come to know the Lord. And last December, bless her heart, I got to baptize my daughter and I went, praise Jesus, that's three for three. And now that I continue to pray that they will walk with the Lord, that they'll be faithful to them, to him, I continue to pray, but, but here's what you want to pray. Here's what Ezekiel said would happen. I will take out of you a heart of stone. I will replace it with a heart of flesh. And I will put the fear of me in you so that you will not turn away. That's not an unhealthy fear. That's not a godless, 
baseless fear. That's a healthy fear of a holy God. I'm going to put that fear in you, and you will not turn away. And for years, I prayed, God, do that for Samuel. Do that for Seth. Do that for Gracie. Would, would you do that for my children? Because here's the thing. I, I can't trust that they're going to be intelligent enough to figure out what's wrong and solve it themselves. I can't trust that they're going to have the will in and of themselves to, to want to do what's right. I can't do that. You know why? It's because they're just as dumb and just as fallen as their daddy. The only hope they ever had was the hope God gave them in Christ and the hope that through Christ and through the presence of the Holy Spirit more particularly that their hard hearts would be crushed. Just pray that for your loved ones. And let that be the opening line. Father, you're in heaven. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done. And not just in heaven, but in my heart, overflowing into the hearts of the people that I love most. Pray for God to be glorified in Christ and by conversions. And now, now having done that, we're ready to turn this on to ourselves. Let's pray for God to be glorified by Christians, verse 4 and 5, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had be with you before the world existed. Now, the Lord's speaking prophetically here, which is why the statement is in the past tense, as if it has already, beyond, it's already happened. It's beyond the present tense. And he says, I have accomplished. So even though it's a few hours away, with reference to these words, he's like, it's as good as done. I am resolute. I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring glory to you. I'm going to reflect that glory in myself. I'm going to redeem for myself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's done. So it's first and foremost a statement about the atonement, uh, that it's 100% successful in securing the salvation of anyone and everyone who believes. In Isaiah 53, uh, we see that prophesied some 800 years before, that of the suffering servant... He out, he, out of the anguish of his soul, will see, and he'll be satisfied. He will see the results of his suffering, and he will be completely content, completely satisfied. But keep in mind, this isn't just a prayer that's prayed about the accomplishments of the atonement. This is a prayer prayed in front of his disciples. So, so he's not just making a statement by him, about himself. He's setting an example. His prayers set an example. And in this case, you know what that example is? It's obedience. I did what you desire. I have, or I will, or I am accomplishing your will. So here's the hard part. This is when we pray that God will be glorified in us, those prayers must be accompanied with a commitment to obey his will. You know what the psalmist tells us about this? If I regard iniquity in my heart, if I hold on to conscientiously something that I know is not of the Lord, something I know I'm acting in rebellion toward him, the Lord will not hear my prayer. This is a big one. Obedience on earth as it is in heaven, may my obedience to your revealed will and my passion for your presence in my life bring you honor. May it bring you honor if I get cancer. May it bring you honor if I lose my spouse or one of my children. May it bring you honor if I get that promotion. May it bring you honor 
If I inherit $10 million, may it bring you honor. By the way, you, you recognize that getting cancer and inheriting $10 million, in our materialistic world, sometimes we're blinded to the fact that both of those are crises. They're crises. And for some of us, we can handle cancer better than we can handle all of the weight that comes with what is now our responsibility to handle a level of wealth that we've never had to handle before. We don't think about that, do we? Because we, we're raised in, in a culture that teaches us that the material good is always inherently good. Whatever happens, Lord, good or bad, may my life bring you honor. And, and here's, the, here's the promise, not only in John 17, but in Matthew chapter 6. This is where powerful prayer begins. If my prayers are going to be effective, they have to begin with this request. Lord, in every area of my life, make yourself known. Glorify your name. And before I bring anything else to you, I want to submit myself to you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I mean, how much better of a mindset is it? Let's just be honest. With whatever chaos has erupted in your life over the last several months or even over the last several years, for you to just simply quiet your soul and pray with all the spirit intended by those words, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done here just as it is there. The realization of the truth of those words, what, what a peace that brings. What, what a way, what a power it has to push the reset button on all the things flying around in your mind and your head. What effectiveness it brings at bringing you and me in sync with the God who created us to be able to say, everything I have is yours. I throw myself at your feet your kingdom come. I will obey. Pray for God to be glorified in Christ, in conversions, in those of us who call ourselves Christians. Most of you know one of my favorite Reformation pastors was Martin Luther, who actually started the Reformation, and uh, he taught at the University of Wittenberg, but outside the classroom, most of his most meaningful time was spent with the students around his dining room table. His wife, Catherine, was, uh, well, she just made apparently really good beer. Uh, so for those of you, I'm not a big beer drinker, but if you like really dark German beer, apparently Katie had the best in the country. And she would make her beer and serve it to Martin and his students, and they would just sit around for three, four hours and drink dark German beer and talk about theology. Um, and so for some of you, that's like heaven. For others of you, you're like, well, take one or the other out and I'll be fine but that's what the Germans do, right? And so they were, they were sitting around. And if you want, by the way, the content of some of those discussions, there's actually a book that's been published. You can even get it on Amazon. It's called Table Talk. Martin Luther, Table Talk. It's all these discussions that he had with the students. <clears throat> and on one occasion, they were talking about prayer and this particular subject. And Dr. Luther was trying to get across to his students what he was trying to communicate. He was having trouble doing it. And then all of a sudden, he looked down and he saw his dog. How many of you believe beyond my understanding that your dog should be inside your house instead of outside? There's a few of you. That's all right. We can differ on that. Luther was one of those guys. He was like you. He kept his dog inside. He looked down, and there was apparently a lot of really good food on the table as well. 
with that dark German beer, and he saw his dog do what a lot of you all have seen your dog do. That's it, right? You just, it's, it's, it's spooky, isn't it, when your dog does that to you? But something switched in Luther's mind. He saw, he saw this puppy looking up with an open mouth, motionless eyes. And he said, oh, that I could only pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on it. Otherwise, he has no thought. Think about it. Let me say that again. All his thoughts are concentrated on it. Otherwise, he has no thought, no wish, no hope. There's an old hymn that used to be sung, and I remember it growing up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and here's the consequence of that. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what Luther was talking about. When I have centered my soul to the point that I am focusing my prayers and I haven't brought the first need to him, that's coming, all right? We're talking in subsequent weeks. How do you pray for God's provision? Your father wants to hear that. How do you ask for forgiveness? How do you ask for the spirit to forgive others? How do you ask not to be led into temptation? All those things are very important. Your father wants to hear from you. He wants to provide for you. But the only way you get this done effectively is if it starts here. All my thought on the glory and the majesty of God, which means now my desires are in sync. And let me tell you something. If my desires are 100% in sync with Jesus, here's the promise. Jesus always gets his prayers answered. Always. Always. Get myself in sync with his rule and his kingdom. Otherwise, I don't have a thought. I don't have a wish. I don't have a hope. But I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters. When you get to that point, then and not before, are you ready to pray prayers that will change the world, that will turn it upside down, that will change your soul, that will convert your friends and your neighbors, prayer that will allow you see, to see the power of God unleashed in ways you never thought possible so when you pray who's at the center who's at the center maybe maybe you're here this morning or watching on the other side of that camera and you you don't have a relationship with Jesus you may have spent a lot of time in a church but there's never really been a moment where you have confessed your sins and put your faith in that atonement that we talked about that the Lord Jesus came lived a life that you me could never live did that on our behalf as our substitute, died taking the penalty for our sin, which the scriptures tell us is death and separation from God and hell, and he took that away. And all you need to do for, at this moment is turn away from your sin and give him your life and put your faith and your trust in that atoning death and resurrection. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Maybe that's how you can finally begin to pray. Maybe some of you have already been walking with Jesus for a long time, but you're wondering what... Why are my prayers not having an effect? And maybe this is the day when you need to recommit yourself to beginning this task with the right focus, the right center. When you pray, who's at the center? Let's bow together. Father, Father thank you for the, the truth of your word, for the depth of your teaching. Lord Jesus, 
thank you for modeling for us, not just teaching us in a classroom setting, but modeling what powerful prayer looks like. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that when we are in sync with your will, when we are in sync with you, we will get our prayers answered just like you always get your prayers answered. And so strengthen our resolve in this day and in this time. May we love you. May we glorify you. And may you do amazing things through us as a result of us simply being willing to submit all we have to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message.